This is The Next Turn, the home of conversations about skiing, ski racing, and sport. I'm your host, Martin Wilson, and thank you for joining us in the pursuit of better. To be better athletes, better coaches, better parents, and better fans. This week, a conversation with Dexter Payne. Welcome back to The Next Turn. It's great to have you back here. As always, I am excited to have Jeff Fiber and Kara Williams by my side. Jeff, how you doing, man? Hey, Martin. Great. Hey, Kara. Hey, listen, guys, how lucky are we to have these great guests? Like, first, we have Therese Brison, head of Alpine Canada. Now we have the vice president of FIS. And how exciting is the World Cup right now? Like, you never know from one race to the other who's got a chance, who's in there. We got some outliers poking, you know, getting on the podium. It's just, I mean, for a ski geek, it's just so much fun right now. Yeah, our sport's peaking right now. Jeff, it sounds like you have a Red Bull. I love it, man. I love it. Kara, <laughs> how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm with you, Jeff. I, I've been loving it. I've been setting my alarm early and uh, grabbing all the coffee and watching ski racing. It's been so fun. Uh, and Jeff, you're right. How cool is it? We're talking to Dexter Payne, the vice president of Federation International de Ski on our humble little podcast. And we get to talk about a lot of stuff. It's really quite cool. But before we go any further, Jeff, why don't you give us some hard facts on Dexter Payne and Federation International Duski? Yeah. Dexter Payne grew up in Intervale, New Hampshire, ski racing. He attended and skied for Williams College. He was the president of the U.S. Ski Team Foundation, which is the charitable arm of the U.S. Ski Team. He spent 13 years as a chairman of U.S. Ski and Snowboard before being elected in 2014 to the vice president of FIS. And in 2020, became a member of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. The Federation International to Ski oversees cross-country, ski jumping, Nordic combined, alpine, freestyle and free ski, snowboard, telemark, and masters. It's the largest international sports federation in the world. It was founded in 1924. It has 134 member nations with more than 7,000 events annually. There are more than 30,000 licensed athletes. Jesus Christ, that's a lot. That's big. That's really big when you think of it like that. No wonder they get a bad rap and they're like the big corporate boogeyman, huh? Kara, what's, what's your take on this? What should people be listening to? What's the story here? Well, I don't know about you two, but I can't remember ever seeing, reading, or hearing an interview with a FIS representative. So part of the story for sure is that this is rare. Um, FIS has, in my experience, presented as a sort of faceless entity wielding a ton of power. And well, the ve- vice president, Dexter Payne, grew up like many of us, as we've learned in this interview that you'll you'll hear, listener. Um, he participated in a race program going to head-to-head with other local New England ski clubs. His mom was a volunteer gatekeeper. His dad was a technical delegate. So he grew up passionate about skiing and uh, with a lifelong love of the sport. So now, cut to now, he's the VP of FIS, and this is a big job. 52% of all Winter Olympic medals are won by FIS-governed sports, so clearly they do wield a ton of power. Um, But it's important to note that he's not a U.S. representative. He's a fiduciary of the sport, a fiduciary of the athletes. And in this interview, Dexter speaks about transparency television broadcast rights, growing the sport, making it more accessible. But he also openly talks about athlete safety, prize money, and he addresses the athletes union that uh, we've been talking about so far this season. He also speaks to uh, athletes being allowed to go quote unquote professional and secure sponsorship funding. Um, You ask him some tough questions, Martin, and in turn, he sheds some light on some important issues. Thank you for that, Kara. It's an awesome way to take a look at what we were talking about. So thank you very much. For me, I'm excited to, to have this conversation with him. It's such a unique perspective, some, such a long career in the sport, and such a different look at it than I'm used to. So a rare opportunity. So here we are, our conversation with the Vice President of FIS, Dexter Payne, here on The Next Turn. But I was lucky enough to grow up in a town where there was a really good race program, where there was actually an after-school ski program, you know, very traditional New England town. And ski racing was a huge part of my life, both in terms of the sport piece, but also in terms of friends, in terms of the community. Um, my parents were active in the Mount Washington Ski Club. Uh, they were uh, race officials. You know, my mom was always a gatekeeper on the side of the hill or serving hot chocolate at the bottom. You know, my dad was uh, 
an attorney and gravitated towards being a, you know, a technical delegate at ski races. And, you know, I grew up with three sisters, all of whom raced. And uh, it was just a great part of our experience. You know, when I was a kid, we used to have um, the local races, um, which is actually something that I wish we had more of these days. I, you know, we used to have team races where you raced against Wildcat, Atatash, yep. uh, King Pine. Um, and then, you know, if you qualified out of those races, you'd get to go to four New Hampshire races in February. Um, and it was a great system. I ultimately ended up going to Holderness School, ski racing at Holderness, and then Williams College, where I skied competitively. And it was the sport that I was passionate about. And the great thing about skiing is it's a lifelong sport. So I still ski as much as possible. Um, my kids all ski. It's a really great family sport for us these days. And it was a huge part of my family growing up. And, uh, you know, it's been lucky enough to give back through some of the work I've done since I retired from uh, ski racing, uh, being involved at U.S. Ski and Snowboard, being involved at this, and now at the USOPC. Your passion and love for the sport, it seems to have just continually built over time. You've mixed that with your or business acumen to really do some really incredible things in the sport and for the sport. Can you just give us the quick synopsis of maybe three or four roles that you've played or sort of the evolution of the roles that you've played over the year in, in the industry? You know, I'm a firm believer in giving back in volunteerism. And I was lucky enough in the mid nineties to get a phone call from Bill Merold, who I knew, uh, and Tom Weisel, who I also knew and asked me if I was interested in joining um, U.S. Ski Team Foundation. At the time, it was a relatively small organization. Since that time, it's become an incredibly important part of the success of U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Uh, but in 1995, I joined the foundation. In 2002, um, I became president of the U.S. Ski Team Foundation. 2006, I became the uh, president of U.S. Ski and Snowboard or chairman of U.S. Ski and Snowboard. And I did that for 13 years. In 2012, uh, I uh, ran for and was elected to the FIS Council, which is the National Ski Federation Council. And last year, I got elected to the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, and Paralympic Committee Board. What do you do with your free time, huh? That's <laughs> too busy. You know, I, 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 I've got three kids, and as you know, that leaves you very little free time. Um, but I'm really lucky that my wife and kids are incredibly supportive, are passionate about it as well. You know, it's been something we've been able to share. We've gone to lots of Olympics together, which is really fun. I have a daughter who has got to be the biggest Olympic fan in the world. Uh, and it's one of those things that we get to spend time together doing that. But it's, you know, in terms of the sport, we all do it together. And that's one of the great things about skiing is you can do it as a family. That's awesome. I think it's great to hear that sort of background and, and connection to the sport. When, when we think of you, of where you are in, in the sport now, as far as being on the Fisk Council, the Vice President of Federation International Duski, which is a pretty big deal and a pretty influential position. And I think sometimes I've been in the sport for a long time and I haven't seen many conversations with somebody in your position. And it's great to humanize the position. and. I love your passion. I love your connection with, with the sport. I love that it's a family part. If you don't mind, I wouldn't mind going sort of chronologically through a few of those um, phases of your career. In your 13 years as uh, the chairman of the board of U.S. Ski and Snowboard, there were some really lofty goals that were set out. And there was a huge evolution in, in what U.S. Ski and Snowboard did. and was capable of doing. Can you talk a little bit about your tenure there? Well, ultimately, my role as chairman was to support our CEO. And we were lucky enough during that time to have a great CEO, Bill Merrill, who I worked closely with. Um, as everyone knows, Bill was probably the most focused individual I've ever worked with in my life. You know, his constant mantra was best in the world. And in 2010, 
in Vancouver, we in fact were best in the world. You know, we had some just phenomenal athletes that helped us get there. Lindsey Vaughn, Bodie Miller, Billy DeMong. I mean, it's just an extraordinary group. Hannah Carney, um, who all took advantage of a Olympics that was in North America, wasn't necessarily in the U.S., where you had great pressure um, and people performed. And working with Bill was a real pleasure. When Bill retired, um, Tiger took over. Tiger brought a really different culture to the organization, one that was appropriate for the time, um, much more athlete-centric, much more focused on the development side of the organization, on our regions. Um, And, you know, Tiger's one of the all-time great people. It was a real pleasure working with him. Recently, we've hired Sophie Goldsman. I'm really excited about Sophie's short tenure. I think she brings an enthusiasm, a passion. It's great to have a female. I mean, um, if you look at our organization, um, we have been an organization where women have done extraordinarily well, have quite frankly outperformed the men in terms of our sports. Um, And it's great to have a leader who's a woman. When we go forward from there, your time on the FIS Council, you're now the vice president of FIS, like I mentioned before. What is the job? What is the job of a member of the FIS Council? What is the job of the vice president of FIS? So um, being on the FIS Council, you are a fiduciary overseeing competitive ski and snowboard in globally. So, you know, it is our job to make sure that we have great races, that we have great organizing committees, that we provide our athletes with the opportunity to perform at the top of their sport, that we compensate those athletes in a way they can make a living in the sport, that we give them the platform that allows them to be known and allows our sport to be known. I think most importantly, I'm not a representative of the United States when I sit on that council. I'm a fiduciary for the sports and a fiduciary for our athletes. Now, FIS has undergone some really interesting changes that I think we've been important uh, part of those changes. Um, When I first uh, joined the council, it was an organization that had not changed in a very long time. Um, It had a leadership team of John Franco, uh, Casper, and Sarah Lewis had been there for an extended period of time. They'd done a great job overseeing a significant growth in the number of events that we represented in the Olympics. So today we're about 52% of all medals in the Winter Olympics is represented by FIS. Um, wow. We are far and away the most dominant IF, International Federation, under the IOC. In fact, we have the most medals of any international federation, including all the summer international federations. So we're larger than track and field, larger than swimming. We are the largest IF in the world, but we had not changed. And um, starting in 2012, we started to put forward some fairly um, dramatic changes in governance that we thought were important for the organization, um, increasing athlete representation uh, on the council. When I joined, there were no athlete representatives. Um, today, we're two, and we need to expand that even farther. You know, we've been an advocate for term limits. Uh, we've been an advocate for greater diversity on the um, council. Um, thankfully, um, we were able to also uh, convince Johan Ilias to run when John Franco Casper retired uh, last year. Um, and Johan has brought just a real breath of fresh air um, and has been a real advocate. In this fall, all of our reforms were, or most of our reforms were passed. And we've been really excited about the ability to lead this organization into the next century in terms of governance. We have lots of additional work we need to do around race formats, around calendar, around improving the experience for our athletes, increasing the uh, ability of our athletes to be known globally. So we're in the process of looking at reforming our uh, sponsorship 
relationships. We're in the process of looking at um, taking over the central or centralizing our media rights, um, all of which we think will lead to a better experience for the athletes, better or, you know, um, a sport that's seen by more people and where increased uh, enthusiasm and participation about our sport. The one thing I should go back and talk about at FIS is while um, we're primarily focused on the elite athletes at the FIS level, we think having heroes and having well-known athletes actually helps the sport at the grassroots level. So there's nothing more compelling to a kid than having a hero like a Lindsey Vaughn or a Bodie Miller to follow. That's what makes you passionate about the sport. And the more of those athletes, whether it's Alexi Pintero or it's Michaela Schifrin, those are the reasons kids get out, are excited about the sport, and hopefully remain active in the sport over a significant period of time. Not only as ski racers, but quite frankly, as parents, encouraging their kids to be involved in the sport as well. Amen to that. <laughs> like that's that's thank you. We when we spoke last time, we talked a little bit about um how Johan has set up the Fisk Council. Um and and how the, these how progressive he is and and how he intends to progress with working groups and a lot of them and really empowering some people to come up with some new ideas and, and fresh looks. Can you speak to so, sort of what some of those working groups are? You, you mentioned a few of them, but what those working groups are and what they've been empowered to do and what that process for change is. Once again, it um, has been great working with Johan. Um, we got to know Johan through his participation in the sport over time. Um, and we felt really strongly it was time to have someone in that position that not only had an ex uh, background in skiing and snowboarding, but also had a business background. You know, historically, those positions have been filled by people who've come up through the sports side. And, you know, we're an organization that's incredibly profitable. We've got a significant cash reserve and it needs to be run like a business. And so Johan has put together working groups in each one of our major disciplines who are focused on improving the athlete experience in those disciplines, improving the racing schedule, improving um, the formats, um, trying to modernize each one of our sports in a way that we make for a better viewer experience, we make safer sports uh, for our athletes. And you know, we try to make sure that we stay at the forefront of what's going on. It's very hard. If you, you know, I chatted about this, you know, you look at a sport like Formula One, they've done an incredible job using data to get the fan to increase and promote the fan experience. So there's heart rate, there's G-forces, there's speed, there's all this data that quite frankly, really helps the fan understand what's going on in the sport. We can do all of that in skiing and snowboarding. Quite frankly, we don't have to reinvent the technology. It exists and we need to just bring that to our sport. Wouldn't it be great to know that Biot Voigt is going 110 kilometers, the G-forces are four times, and you know his heart rate is 170 when he's on the Lauberhorn in the downhill today. That's the kind of stuff you know I'm interested in, but my 25-year-old kids are really interested in. And that's the kind of thing that gets them watching more than just 30 seconds of Michaela's winning run and gets them to spend 30 minutes or 45 minutes watching a World Cup event. Or, you know, in the case of Formula One, three hours. Um, we also have working groups that are focused on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We have working groups that are focused on trying to improve opportunity and the experience for all of our techs and all the people that provide the backup to what happens. Um, and quite frankly, without them, we can't have successful World Cup events. So, you know, these groups have been put in place. Um, they will report back um, in 2022. And out of that, hopefully will come some significant changes that makes our sport better 
uh, for everyone involved. Can we go into sort of, I, I love how you talk about the package, but talk about the broadcasting package as a whole, the rights, the, the challenges to make the sport more accessible. When we spoke last time, I, I, I said, and by the way, you're a member of the IBU, International um, Biathlon Union now, but I've been watching a lot of that because it's on TV and I know the characters and I know the people and I know some stories. I watch a lot of cross country because it's there. How do we make, what are the challenges in, in the way to make this sport more accessible on TV, specifically the broadcast rights? What are the challenges there? What's the strategy to bring this sport to a wider market? You know, historically, the broadcast rights have been handled at the country level or at the local organizing committee. You know, we think by centralizing the rights, centralizing the sponsorship, that we can generate more revenue. We can implement some of these changes we've talked about. You know, I'm on the U.S. Biathlon Board, and I think the IBU has done an incredible job. Um, they have fully centralized rights. Um, they um, actually control the venues where they have their events. Now, for them, it's a bit easier. They have a single sport. They have a limited number of athletes. But they've done a great job taking a sport that 20 years ago, very few people knew about to, I'm just like you. I love watching biathlon on TV. There's also, you know, you miss a, miss a shot and you take a lap. It's very intuitive, you know, and I think there's lots that we can learn from IBU in terms of what they've done. I think that centralization will allow FIS to generate more revenue, which we can put back into the sport, pay our athletes more money in terms of prize money. Um, we can quite frankly make it a safer sport by investing capital into athlete safety. I also think by centralizing the rights we can handle some of the things we've talked about in terms of promoting the use of data, um, requiring you know better broadcast experience. You know, I recognize that there was a significant issue with drones and Marshall Hersher, but you know we're going to have to use drones to create a better experience, and we're going to have to figure out how to do that safely. Um, you know, the experience in Italy, I don't know, five years ago. It's amazing that no one was hurt, but we're going to have to go over that and figure out how we use technology to create a better viewing experience for our fans. And, you know, you can only do that if you centralize the rights and if you have people whose 100 percent of the job is focused on creating a better experience for our fans. Um, selfishly, there's a tennis channel that I love. There's a golf channel that I like, even though I'm not a big golfer. How far are we from a fist channel? I'm not a digital media expert, but I think we're very close to all these events ultimately being streamed. And that you and I go onto our phone, um, you know, quite frankly, I um, subscribe to the Eurosport app. I like Nick Fellows, listen to him talk about it. And, you know, whether I'm standing on the side of the race hill or I'm at home or I'm sitting in an airport, I can watch a ski race or a cross country race or a snowboard event whenever I want to watch it on my phone. And I think we're very close to getting to the point where we may not have a well, we'll probably have a fist channel, but that fist channel will be a streaming channel. So you'll subscribe to it and you can go in and for, you know, $120 a year, you'll have access to every fist event out there. Hopefully, you know, you can watch as many times as you want. Um, you can watch a single run of your favorite ski racer, or you can watch the entire second run. Or if you're a real diehard, you can watch the entire first run of slalom. And, you know, if you happen to have a kid who races 58th in the first run of the slalom, but doesn't make the flip, you can watch that run at 58. And I think we're very close to having that kind of an experience. I do think that's why the centralization of rights is so important, because when you have each country controlling, it's very hard to create that kind of streaming experience. But I think, you know, hopefully we're not very far from FIST being able to deliver that kind of product to someone in Norway, to someone in the U.S., or someone in Kazakhstan. 
Thank you for that. I can't wait. <laughs> with the first subscriber. I'm in. I'm in. I already get up at three in the morning or four in the morning to watch <laughs> a cup of coffee and I watch every single on the first run. I'm I'm that guy. Um, so I'll be in. I've been really fortunate to have a few conversations with Tina Y rather. I'm just name dropping here. Tina Y rather. She's one of the smartest people in the sport that I've ever met. She knows so much about anything. She's got incredible DNA <laughs> um, with her parents who've been in the sport forever. She's now an SRF commentator, but we've been talking about her role on, on one of the working groups we've talked about, athlete uh, injury prevention. They, they're doing a lot of research and data. One of, the, one of the frustrations that she mentioned, and I'll just poke the bear here a little bit, is getting access to money to really put back into it. When you mentioned F1 earlier, F1 puts a ton of money directly back into safety and innovation Et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that cycle uh, or the idea of pumping money into these working groups, specifically this athlete injury prevention one, which I think is one of the most important things? And we'll get into athlete protections and athlete longevity. But these athletes are getting hurt once every three years on average. What's the strategy from that working group to, to really push innovation and safety? Yeah, I'm not on the athlete prevention, uh, injury prevention working group, but I will tell you that I think there is probably no more important um, working group than that working group. There is so much we need to be doing in our sport to decrease the number of injuries, you know, whether it's concussions, whether it's ACL injuries. I mean, if you think about the number of our athletes that don't finish the season, it's staggering. I don't know where we are relative to other major sports, but I will tell you that it's a huge issue for us. And I think historically under the old regime, there was a hesitation to put money back into things like injury prevention or into prize money. I think under Johan's leadership, there will be a new uh, approach here. I think you'll see an appreciation for athlete health that didn't exist and the need to increase athlete longevity in terms of being in the sport. Johan comes out of, uh, there's no one who has spent, quite frankly, more on athletes than Johan. Um, you know, as the owner of Head Ski, um, they have been incredibly supportive of their athletes uh, in terms of uh, compensation. And I think Johan understands that without our athletes, we don't have a sport. Our athletes are the reason that people tune in and want to watch our races. When someone like Sophia Gosia is injured as much as she's injured, that's a real challenge for our sport. And we need to figure out how we take much better care of our athletes. You know, when you go out on one of these courses and you appreciate that it is absolutely concrete, and then you put on top of that someone going 120 kilometers an hour when they hit that concrete. It's a real challenge keeping our athletes well. You know, that dynamic is not one that leads to good health. And I think we need to spend a lot more money and we need to be a lot more focused on this area than we have been historically. I was really happily surprised when we spoke the other day, when we talked about athlete health, you were really pushing and promoting wellness, mental wellness, holistic wellness for the athlete from not only keeping them safe on the hill, but making sure they have a sustainable living and they, they're ready and they have the tools for retirement. Can you speak a little bit about your priorities in, in those arenas? Yeah. One of the things that I've really um, come to appreciate being on the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic uh, committee board is the importance of mental health. Um, we've done a lot at USOPC um, on the mental health side. You know, there's still a lot more to do. It's been led by people like Jeremy Bloom, who's been a huge advocate for mental health in our sport. And our athletes, quite frankly, can't go out and compete effectively unless they're happy and we provide support on the mental health side. I think that for a long time, we didn't appreciate that this was as important as the physical health piece. 
And, you know, at FIS, we've never really focused on it. And I think it is one of the areas that we need to spend a lot more time and money as we think about our athletes. The other piece that is so important that you and I chatted about is we need to make sure our athletes not only get paid very well, not just the top athletes, but all of our competitive athletes get paid well from a prize money perspective. I'm a huge advocate for increasing prize money across the board. I think, you know, it is the best investment we could make in the sport. Um, but the other thing we need to do is we need to make sure that there's a career path for our athletes. We want to keep these folks in the sport, whether they're coaches, whether they become the next president of FIS, you know, Michelle Dion, who is a former world champion, who's now our secretary general at FIS. We want to create career paths in our sport so those athletes have something to do after they retire, something really meaningful to do that they're passionate about after they retire from the sport. And, you know, I think it's like any organization, the most enthusiastic supporters of a high school or college are the alumni. And I don't think we're any different than that. Our best advocates, our greatest supporters, the people that are going to work hard for our athletes and for the sport are our alums. And we need to make sure there's career paths and opportunities for them to be in that. And we need to set up programs, particularly around the coaching side, in terms of coaching education. We need to set up programs that people want to be involved in the business side. We need to make sure that we provide scholarships for folks that want to go on to further education. Um, and I just think that's really important to create a long-term sustainable sport platform. I really do appreciate that. When you talk about prize money, our, our sports been pushing or like we've been ahead of the curve as far as equal money, prize money for men and women. You talk about not just the superstars making a living off of their careers. Can you speak? Do you have data on this discrepancies between, well, the, not the discrepancy, but what someone like Laura Gubarami makes it in prize money versus number 45 on the overall and how do we adjust that gap fairly and still reward the winners? Yeah, I don't have any data. I will say that, you know, I think one of the things I'm really proud about is that we have equal prize money across on both men and women across all of our sport. I think we've actually been ahead of the game there. Um, and last year, you know, the athlete that made more money than any other athletes in our sport was Michaela Schifrin, who was a woman. I think that's, you know, relative to other major sports, I think that's pretty unusual. That's not true in tennis. It's not true in golf. Um, and I think we can be really proud of that. Um, I think the biggest discrepancy is the difference between what Laura Goode or Sophia Gogia or Michaela makes versus what number 30 makes. And does number 30 in the world, if you're Paula Monson or Nino O'Brien, do you make enough that you can afford to be in this sport for a long period of time? Can you afford to still do it when you're 30? And that's, in order to have a really competitive sport, that's what we need to do, is to make sure that number 30 through 45 in the world are making you know, enough to stay competitive and to live a reasonable lifestyle when they're 32 years old to wanna to still stay in the sport. And I think we do that by increasing prize money down to number 30. So we pay prize money from one to 30 in our events these days. And we need to make sure that we increase, it's probably more important to make sure that we increase what number 30 makes than it is for number one, because number one is getting paid by their ski brand. They're getting paid by, you know, their apparel brand. There's, you know, pretty good prize money there. They're doing all right. They're doing okay. That's not the person I worry about. What I worry about is the person who finishes 28th today maybe has a few sponsorship deals, but is having a really hard time affording, you know, making a living as a ski racer or as a snowboarder. And we got to make sure that, you know, we have a competitive field that goes deeper than one through 10. It should go one through 30 or one through 40. And you know, that's something we're going to have to work on. Um, it's not an area that we've figured out, but I think it's really important for the success of the sport. 
Amen. I totally agree. Especially when you combine that with the injuries. Yeah. You, you know, and you, that's take it, you know, that takes away their livelihood unless they have Aflac, you know, <laughs> like that, that's the real problem. And, and that sort of leads me to the n- next step is sort of the bigger picture of athlete protections and say, I love everything that you're saying. It's very comforting to hear what you are saying and, and what, where FIS is headed. It's quite nice. We, we spoke the other day and I shared, uh, I shared the conversation I had with Jan Hudek, who, who is a very smart, but outspoken man, a bit of a renegade. He said he felt at times that the athletes were circus monkeys. And I, and I think that was his way of saying, if number 30 gets hurt, there's going to be another number 30 tomorrow. And the last number 30, they like, there's no help for a lot of other sports have athlete federations or unions or, or what have you. What's the solution to give those athletes? Is it just prize money or is there a better plan to give those athletes more say in their future and more hands in into the pot and and help themselves get through this? First of all, I, I would say that I, don't agree with circus monkey comment. I it's fair. Think. Not many people um, do. <laughs> I, I do think we're, we really care about our athletes and we really want our athletes to be successful across all of our sports. You know, one of the things I'm most proud of is uh, when I joined the Fist Council, we had no athlete representation. And today, two of our 17 members are athletes. And at the USOPC and at the NGBs, 33% of all representation on national governing boards are athletes. And I think that athlete voice is incredibly important. And, you know, one of the things I continue to push really hard for is athlete representation, greater athlete representation on each of the committees, because I think the athletes need to be involved in some of the things like safety that we're talking about. I think Tina's a perfect example. You know, if you haven't been an athlete, you don't fully understand the safety issues and or the downside. So I think greater athlete representation um, is important. We also need to make sure that we, as we talked about, that we keep the athletes involved in the sport. Because, you know, one of the keys to that is if all of a sudden the secretary general at this is a former athlete, uh, former world champion, I think you have a greater appreciation for the challenges. And, you know, as I said, I actually think in Johan, we don't have someone who was a former World Cup racer, but we actually have someone who has a real understanding of the athletes and who's been incredibly supportive of the athletes. So, look, should there be a union like there is in Major League Baseball or in football? You know, I think one of the challenges in our sport has been, you know, we're a global organization trying to put something together is really challenging, you know, trying to take a um, Chinese uh, aerialist and a Swiss downhiller and put them together into the same organization is challenging. So I, I, I don't know whether there is an opportunity there. You know, I wouldn't oppose an athlete's union if that's what the athletes decided was best. But I think there are a lot of things we can do to try to create, you know, a better work environment and a better environment for athletes. And I think we need to be laser focused on you know, we've talked about it, athlete safety, prize money, um, better formats. Quite frankly, we have too many races in the year. One of the reasons we have so many people being hurt is people are exhausted. You know, I think we need to look at trying to extend the season and have fewer races, but maybe a longer season. Um, you know, the fact that we end March 15th has always been incredible to me. Um, and I we do it because the Europeans head off on Easter holiday and want to be warm and, you know, television numbers go down. It's another reason why if we can control our media rights, I think we can potentially do some things that long-term have a really positive impact on the athletes as well and athlete safety and athlete health. I love that you're thinking of the calendar too, because that, that is a big one. It's something has to be done. We can do it far better than we're doing it. Oh. And, and you're right. It can, it can serve the athletes a lot better. I really appreciate your your candor on this stuff because sometimes like i said earlier sometimes fist can be the boogeyman and now hearing you speak and talking about what your priorities are is it's really quite comforting and i hope our listeners are at ease feeling that 
you yourself are a former athlete. This is starting to evolve into a lot of former athletes being involved in, in a progressive way in a, in a pro athlete fashion. And, and that's huge. Before we wrap up, I, I want to go back to where we started again. After we spoke the other day and I thought about it, the most exciting part was talking about how you felt about the sport and about the volunteers that make this sport happen and how we rely on them. Can you take a moment and just talk about not only, again, your roots as a volunteer or your family's roots as a volunteer, all the time and energy and resources you volunteered and how you see everybody else from gatekeepers to timers along the way? Well, you and I were talking about this before we are going. Without my parents, without your parents, without my sister who you know, continues to be a TD in New Hampshire, um, despite the fact she doesn't have any kids who compete anymore. You know, we couldn't afford to put our sport on. I mean, you know, if you think about the number of volunteers who are out there gatekeeping, timing, you know, driving kids to ski races, you know, we couldn't afford to pay those people to be involved. One of the incredible things to me is all these people that are part of this have that this experience as volunteers. Now they may be getting paid, you know, at their ski association and they may be a coach, but the time they're putting in to go to a FIS Congress, the time they're putting in to go to a U.S. Ski and Snowboard Congress, the time they're putting in to go to the USOPC assembly is volunteer time. That's what makes these organizations function. And I am so lucky that I grew up in a family where my parents just thought that was part of being part, part of the community. And I worry, I, I just hope that we continue to have that same kind of passion to give back to our sport because our sport only exists if people give back and they do it because they're passionate about the sport. Look, volunteers are at the heart of the development side of our organization. To me, you know, we never say thank you enough. Last question and kind of a follow-up and, and then I'll let you be. God bless the volunteers and God bless what they do for the sport and, and how, you're right, we couldn't do anything without it. Saying that, our sport is so incredibly expensive at young ages still, even with all that volunteerism to take to offset as many costs. When you think of your life in the sport and, and, and your role now, how does that make you feel? Like, it breaks my heart. Like I'm the last, I think I'm the last generation that can really afford to ski race as a, as a blue collar family. Is there anything we can do about that? I'm not going to answer your question directly. I'm just, I'm going to start by saying, I think you identified the single biggest issue in our sport today. And it's like everything else. When you and I grew up ski racing, I had a single pair of skis that I had for two years. I had, you know, I used it for slalom, giant slalom, free skiing. We didn't really have speed events back then, but you used it for absolutely everything. You know, I used to get a new pair of skis for Christmas. That's, you know, what it was, you know, how the sport operated. I look at sort of the... Um, escalation today. And I look at, you know, you go to a ski race with these kids who have four pairs of skis and more equipment. And look, our sport isn't unusual. It isn't unusual. You, you look at other sports, unfortunately, our sport is more expensive because of travel, because of the cost of equipment. But, you know, I look at kids going to Central Park and Literally, kids have four bats in their bag all of a sudden. I borrowed the bat from the Jackson Fireman when I was in Little League. But I, I think that's a really fundamental question. And, you know, Martin, I don't know whether we say, you know, you can't have more than a single pair of skis. I'm, you know, usually not a big advocate for sort of that kind of oversight because I think there's unintended consequences to doing things like that or people somehow get around the rules. But I think we have to. I also, we started this way. I think you need to do a lot more local ski racing when you're relatively young. We can't have kids chasing points across the country. You don't need to do that to be a great ski racer. So I think it's a huge issue. I 
don't know what the right structural solution is. But, you know, if you look at many of our really famous ski racers, the kids who grew up in ski towns, whose parents were ski instructors or real estate agents or cooks, I mean, we're not going to be successful without making sure those kids not only can get into the sport, but can stay in the sport. And, you know, I get to spend a bunch of time in Europe. They do a much better job in Europe in terms of that local participation, in terms of keeping those kids in the sport. And these kids go out and ski in the local hill. And it feels a lot more like what skiing was when I was a kid than what I think it is today. And once again, I don't know the right solution, but I think you've identified a huge problem that we need to really think about. I appreciate you giving it some thought. I really do. I appreciate your time, Dexter. I appreciate you, you your willingness to chat with us. I, I, I appreciate the idea of how much you've given to this sport and how important people like you are in the sport. And I appreciate you shedding light on Fisk Council and making them not the boogeyman. You're just guys who love about the sport, like love the sport like all of us and are trying your best. And we have a lot more in common than you some may have thought. So thank you so much, Dexter. Well, thank you very much for having me on the, sh- the podcast. Anytime you want me back, this has been really fun. As you know, as you can tell, I'm incredibly passionate. And look, one thing I'll say is we at FIST are trying to get better. You know, I think it's an organization that's evolving. I will tell you, I think it was really exciting to elect Johan last year. I think real change in the culture that's going on right now. I think our best days are ahead of us. And that's something that's really exciting. Uh, And the one thing I'd just say, and I hope you put this on the podcast, is, uh, you know, having now gone back and had a chance to listen to a few of your podcasts, your podcasts are terrific. They shed great light on the sport for anyone who wants to listen, I think your athlete podcasts have been just incredible. I would just really encourage people to listen uh, to what you've done. I think it's a, you know, really nice addition to our sport that I didn't know existed, but I hope lots of people will take advantage of. It's really terrific. Oh, I'm gonna leave that part in. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna leave that part in. Welcome back. A special thanks to Dexter Payne for wonderful insight and a career of passion and giving back. So thank you very much to him. It's now time for us to share our thoughts of the day. But before we share ours, I wanted to encourage all of you to share your thoughts of the day on this interview and others at the nexttermpodcast.com slash thoughts. All right, time for thoughts of the day. Jeff, you're up first today. What you thinking? What are your thoughts of the day? Well, Martin, uh, first of all, fantastic interview. Well done as usual. There's so much here to talk about. I'm really impressed with, I I don't know Dexter, never met him before. I feel like I know him now, but his leadership, you can tell this guy, uh, you know, really is committed to our sport and he wants to grow our sport. He wants, he's wants to look at things like integrating data into the, into, uh, into our living rooms, right? Like heart rates of the athletes and the speed each athlete's going all the way down the course and giving us more access, which I think is super important. And they did it in F1 and they've had huge success in, in growing the audience. He talks about television and streaming so that maybe we don't have to set our alarms, as Kara said, you know, super early and get up. We can stream it later on and not hear, know the results. Get up, have your coffee at a reasonable hour. And be able to find it. Like most of the time, you can't even find it. You're finding it on Austrian TV or Swiss TV or somewhere somewhere you can stream it throughout the world. So I think that's fantastic. And then he talks about athletes and money and making sure that there's parity throughout, right? So that number 30 actually makes some money and they can afford to continue to keep going in this great sport of ours, uh, not just Michaela Schifrin's and, you know, the Lindsay Vons of the world that are making bank. So I think that's super important. And, and even talks about a long-term commitment to the athletes to give them an opportunity to have a job post-retirement like Tina Vyrather and, and the same Brian Stemmel and those great folks. But lastly, he talks about volunteers and how important it is to have volunteers in our sport. And we all know how important that is from parents 
to race crew, to people who dedicate their, you know, life to becoming technical delegates. Uh, shout out to my buddy, Tom Vincent in Ontario, who's done just that and become a great TD for us in Ontario. But it's really important to thank those people more than anyone, because they're the people that help get those 7,000 events off around the world. Amen to that, Jeff. Right on. Thank you. Karen, what are you thinking? What are your thoughts of the day? Well, guys, here we are in season two of the next turn. And this is the first time that I personally have encountered public dialogue, true questions and answers in real time with a FIS representative and the vice president of FIS, no less. In addition to alpine skiing, FIS is the governing body for snowboarding, ski jumping, Nordic combined, freestyles, just to name a few. So here's what I'm thinking. They, they have a lot of other sports to look to and to learn from, especially when it comes to growing the sport. And I'm really excited about the idea that by centralizing the rights to television broadcasting of ski racing, that we could reach a whole new viewership. And if the sport of ski racing is going to continue to grow and evolve, having you know more sets of eyes in the World Cup and Olympic events is certainly a surefire way to kickstart an evolution of positive change for our athletes. And you guys remember in last week's episode, Tina Weirother said that... Um, 30% of athletes gets injured in a season. And that really stuck with me. So if what Dexter is saying is true, having a centralized broadcast system could mean increased prize money, which could in turn increase quality of life for our ski racing athletes, but also the increased revenue stream would directly impact the investment into athlete safety. I hope that's true. It sounds like a win to me. That's what I'm thinking. Martin, what are your thoughts of the day? Well, first, let me say to both of you, I think... It's good to hear you guys feeling the way you do about this interview. There's a level of humanity that 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 came out and hit in this conversation with him, and it feels good. I've spent 40 years thinking Fist is the bad guy, the big bad rule maker, and I just feel better about it. And I feel lucky to get to know Dexter a little bit because I feel comfortable that the sport is in good hands, in honest hands, and with honest intent, and and that makes me feel very comfortable. I love how progressive he's thinking about mental health and wellness and the whole athlete, like Jeff said, the prize money, but the, and the schedule, the, but the whole thing. And it just seems like it's in real honest intent. So 90% of what they do is far above my pay grade, but a good leader lets you know that they're thinking about the right things and they're doing like they're trying. And it's pretty obvious. And he says it at the end of the interview, this is just trying to get better it's serving the athletes. So I feel really good about it. Those are my thoughts of the day. Let's leave it there. I hope you all take a moment to share your thoughts of the day with us at the nextturnpodcast.com slash thoughts. Until next week, we'll see you soon. See you on the next turn. Bye-bye.